Hi, and welcome to Work Together, a podcast brought to you by Social Optic. Social Optic offer tools and expertise, empowering organisations to gain critical insights, make informed decisions, and work together better. In this podcast series, we ask experts in their field for their views, thoughts, and advice on topics that we encounter with organisations and leaders, ranging from technology and data science to organisational culture and psychology. Roll intro. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the topic of employee well-being. Joining Benjamin Ellis is Zelda Franklin Hills, Director of Organisational Development and Human Resources at Fife College. Zelda discusses Fife's journey of employee well-being, the importance of strategy, and their challenges and learnings along the way. Let's dive in. The even harder thing is what is the impact? So actually, in terms of impact, how would you, how do you measure that in the organisation? So you could measure things like your sickness, absence, your turnover, and those types of things. But actually, that doesn't necessarily mean that your wellbeing programme is working. So today's topic has become one of those hot topics, I think, in the last couple of years. But the reality is it has a longer history. And so today we're talking about well-being. And I am delighted today to have Zelda join me, who we have worked with here at Social Optic for, for a long while um, and brings a wealth of expertise. So Zelda, I'll let you introduce yourself to the listeners. All right, so I'm Zelda and I work at Fife College and I'm the director of OD and HR there. So um, I'm responsible for the people strategy and the writing of it and the implementation of it. So wellbeing firmly kind of falls into my remit um, and, and I'm I'm kind of excited to share my experiences and thoughts um, around wellbeing in the workplace um, and certainly in a college sector, but maybe maybe wider than that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I think I think that what you have done, I think, just with the context of listeners, has been uh, yeah externally uh, recognised um, in in terms of those things there. So it it really is a privilege to have you here. And probably the place to start is actually what do we mean by well-being? Because it seems to kind of end up in every single LinkedIn post and dropped into every single strategy at the moment. Um, but yeah, I'd like to step back and go well. Let, how do we define well-being? What do we mean by that in an employee context? So I, th- I think that it's a really interesting question. What well, what is well-being? Um, because it's hard to divorce well-being in workplace and, and well-being for the person. I think. Um, so at five, we've kind of started to look at it um, in terms of kind of four pillars. So those four pillars are around emotional, social, physical and financial. So to kind of cover that whole remit of well-being, sometimes people think, well, why would you include financial? Um, but I think this latest economic crisis has kind of told people why financial is important and why it can affect your well-being. Um, because if you don't have enough money compared to what your outgoings are, that's that that can be really worrying for people. Um, and when I think about those four pillars, and I th- I think about you know emotional is is not just about how you're feeling, but it's also about your resilience and your self awareness and and how you manage positive and negative um, emotions uh, and feelings. And I think about social, and I think social is also really, really important as we we come out of COVID and all the things that have happened there. So it's about interactions with others. 
It's about connectedness. I think it's about conflict resolution and how you do that. I also think it's about things like how you, how you adapt to change. So it's quite broad for me. And physical is, I think, which is one of our third pillar is about managing health. It's about prevention, but it's also about improvement. And financial, well, we talked a little bit about that, but it's about, you know, do people manage their finances well? How do they support budgeting? Are there things that we can do that can help in the workplace? So it's not just necessarily about your salaries, but it could be things around can we give extra benefits? Um, can you, you know, join um, groups where they'll offer benefits and money off for certain things? Um, can you do salary sacrifice? So there's kind of a whole range of things that can come in under financial. Uh, for me, those four pillars make up the well-being of a person, but also the well-being for someone in the workplace. That's, I, I really I like the model because a lot of the approach, well, the approaches to well-being from an individual point of view are obviously kind of very in, individualistic. Although actually, even that is shifting. Um, I still have a slight hand in the self-improvement space, and it's been interesting to see the narrative shift there to even in that domain start to think about it more as a social context. But, yeah, I think that model in the workplace of taking into account not just the individual factors, but that the social and the environmental pressures around it as well um, is, is a really nice, robust model. I like it. It's like simple and clear, but it covers all of the all of the different a- attributes because I think trying to pick off well-being as an individual responsibility and exercise, which has been a little bit of a strain in some workplaces, I think doesn't get to the heart of the Heart of the matter, really, as I say, particularly we've got a lot of customers in healthcare, and there we're really seeing, you know, cost of living, the economic factors are very significant to people's well-being because it, you know, it, it is a, a constraint on what they can do and and how they can live. So, mm-hmm. I like it. so how does an organisation get started with well-being? Then, if we kind of recognise at leadership level, this is something we want to do. Where where do you start as an organisation um, with well-being? For us, we were very much thinking about it in terms of the impact of COVID and the and and how that left people feeling, but also because it's important for us to put people at the centre. Um, and that we knew that we would be moving into different ways of working. So um, I think you've got to kind of think about, well, what are your motivations for well-being and why do you want to do it? And where are your levers? So what is it that you want to change? So if I think about Fife College, we had COVID and that kind of started that conversation. But also we know that we are an ageing population and as we age, um, well-being can change for individuals and people. Um, and that that can be through people you have to care for. Um, so you might change from caring for your children to caring for grandparents. You might change, change to caring for your parents um, in those situations or even a loved one. Um, so all of that can impact on that. And, and and as I'm talking about that, I'm thinking that was another impact around COVID and how that changed for some people. Um, you know, their family structures may have changed through that for different different reasons. Um, we didn't really have an issue around things like turnover or absence um, or uh, or any of those types of things. So those weren't necessarily the drivers for us. 
So we've got a range of different roles and people in the organisation. And I think that also impacts how you how you want to think about well-being. So we have people in offices, we have people in classrooms, we have people in prisons because we deliver a learning services contract in the Scottish Prison Service. So we have a range of people. We have people who are peripatetic and they go out, so they spend more time out than in. Um, and we also we're starting and have been on that journey of smarter working and agile working. So where do we want to work? And all of those things led us to think about well-being. And I think those are all the types of things an organisation would need to think about when they think about their well-being journey and what are they, what do they want to change or what are the issues that they've identified around well-being that they need to think about. It's very helpful that there is you, you, you starting with the people, um, both in the, the broader social context and in terms of the makeup of your organisation. It's interesting how organisations I've worked with over the years do come to those points where either you know they've brought in a new intake of, of graduates and that shapes the organisation and the issues, or uh, you know. Uh, kind of parenting related things have become an issue or they've got an aging population with lots of people coming up to retirement and they're looking to you know extend uh, the accessibility of the workplace for those those people to retain that talent and it, yeah it is interesting that you have to start with well what what are you working with because the need's going to be quite quite different um yeah i think when i when i first came across well-being which was a long long time ago uh, back in my days of working with with it it was it was uh, we've given you a gym membership there you go um which which even <laughs> even for me as a, a non-sporty it person probably didn't didn't best address my health and well-being needs at the time um it's interesting that you, you that starting with why? I mean, tell me a little bit more about that, not necessarily the five specifics, but that that's quite a, a different approach because that's quite a strategic approach to well-being, whereas a lot of what I see is can be quite tactical or programmatic. And in um, talking with you, one of the things that, that came out was quite a different perspective, really, on addressing well-being. Yeah, I mean, I've... I've I think as an organisation, the question why in wellbeing is really, really important. So why do you, the question I would always ask, what is the purpose of doing something around wellbeing for us as the organisation? That's the question I would ask. Um, and what is it that we want to change? And why do we want to change that? So we were quite clear, as you say, you know, as you said, we were quite strategic in our thinking and why we wanted to do that. And then there's been other layers as we started to think about it that we've kind of brought in. So we knew, for example, that we that we would have more flexible working. So now we started to think about that in terms of smarter working and moving away from the binary choice that we were having of you're either at home or you're at work. So now with us, we're developing again, thinking about so and how does that then support well-being? So that for me is the key thing in an organisation. What is it that we want to address? Why do we want to address it? And what do we want out of that? How is it going to help us to do the things as an organisation that we need to do? Um, and I think you're right. Sometimes there is this temptation to say, right, OK, well, we need to do something on well-being. So what we'll do is we'll run some 
events and we'll label those events as well-being and then that's doing well-being it is that it absolutely is but that's not in a thought necessarily in a, in a thought out wider strategy over a period of time um, and so what you might get, like you say, Benjamin, is I get some gym membership, or which might be suitable for me. I mean, it might not be for you, but it might be. Or you might do something something else. Um, you know, so you might run some um, occupational health kind of advice and sessions that people can go. But if that's not in a strategy and that's not focused on something, you might end up with a bit more of a scattergun approach and spend quite a lot of money and not actually ever change the well-being of your people in the way that you want to do um, or support them in their well-being perhaps rather than change it although sometimes you will change it for people so that 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 would be what I would think about and I think yeah and I think that bigger strategy piece is really important because what that then does is it really helps you get the investment that you need and the right amount of investment um, but it also helps you then to describe how you're going to measure some of that. I, Measurement's I important. Love that you use the term investment there because sticking my my board hat on for a minute. Um, yeah, having sat on on, on boards, uh, yeah, oftentimes people bring initiatives and say, "This is what we want to spend on this," which is always one of those moments where you tear your hair out slightly. Sometimes, maybe as a board member, but actually, somebody comes saying, "Well, this is what we want to invest in, and this is why." And this is the impact we expect from it and, and effectively embedded in that. Here's how we will measure success. Like that's what you want to see as a, as a, as a board member. It's going, okay, this makes sense. We're, t- you know, we're taking this money. Uh, we're, we're not just you know, throwing some fun, fun events. This is actually an investment that's going to achieve these outcomes that is, is going to improve the organization. I think sometimes people can be a little bit shy on that with well-being because that you know they, it is a, it's a good thing to do and there's a social good to it but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have to make commercial sense and it doesn't have to have measurable objectives yeah and i i think one of the one of my reflections in terms of our uh, sort of hr strategies is we did put in some outcomes and we did think about that um but i think the the better way of looking at it and we didn't do enough of it we absolutely didn't and I know you know as you said we have won awards and things but I would recognize there's always weaknesses in what you can do and there's always things that you can improve upon so that will be one of the areas and I think for me we always struggle in HR um, to think about what well how are we going to measure this what are what are our results what are our outcomes sometimes the high the even harder thing is what is the impact so actually, in terms of impact, how would you how do you measure that in the organization? So you could measure things like your sickness absence, your turnover, and those types of things. But actually, that doesn't necessarily mean that your well-being program is working. You need to think about our do our staff feel more well against your four pillars or whatever it is that you've decided on. Um so I'll give you a lovely story about impact and outcomes. So um, this is not about well-being, but when I worked in another organisation, we were looking at women in the workplace and, and women getting promotion. And also um, 
why they weren't. So we decided that we would invest and have a program to support women to get promotion. And actually what happened is most of the women who participated in the program didn't get promoted, they left. So if you were to look at kind of, well, was that successful or not? You could say, well, no, it wasn't because everybody left. But the reality was those that left went on to much bigger roles in other organisations than they probably would have got in that in our organisation. So that, you know, it is about how you think about it and the impact. So you could say the impact was pretty poor for the, for, you know, for that organisation, but actually it wasn't. It was really great for those individuals. Yeah. Um, so it's how you think about all of these things. We haven't, and as I'm saying, I haven't got that right in the organisation. We're still thinking about that. That will be one of our developments as we start to think about, right, okay, we've been doing well-being, we've got the strategy, that strategy's here for a, for a time. What else? Yeah, and it, it's interesting, the balance of, of measures, because people often jump to the analytics, which is a good starting place, you know, turnover and those sorts of things. They, they are very laggy measures in terms of they fall behind, and they're very vulnerable to confounding factors to to external ones so it's, it's interesting that as we're building a body of data actually the attitudinal measures how do you feel how do other people around you feel actually that they're, they're leading indicators because you see those moving more quickly but the other piece of that is that those attitudes do directly move into performance and that's something we're seeing more and more because of the linkages between how people are feeling the the time off that they may take related to that or even if they don't actually just the drag that gets introduced to teams sometimes if, if a team member is not at their best actually the the radius of the impact on that is quite significant in the organization a lot more than people realize it's not just like one ripple out it's a couple of ripples out and something's changed but you don't know why and it's, it's you know because because there's somebody struggling with one of those dimensions of, of well-being so actually addressing it you see the changes in the attitudinal measures but we see the other things follow in terms of your know, relationship with the manager um understanding what the organization is about all these other measures move because actually if somebody is struggling they're they're unlikely to be engaged they're unlikely to be managing their team well if they're managing a team so it's you know it's a very direct impact on the attitudinal measure to what actually happens in the organization and well-being is you know i think one of the things i've seen move the dial most rapidly on those things i think partly because it shifts the relationship or the perception of the relationship between the employee and the organization because it is a way of saying we care and demonstrating that we we care which is you know one of, one of those things that changes employee engagement yeah and actually when you were talking there as as um, as organisations get leaner, um, which some are, um, as a result of what, you know the situations and economies and downturns and things, you might find that you're more reliant on single people in yeah. one post because you've only got a person because you can't afford to have more than that in an organisation and therefore their well-being becomes really paramount. Um, particularly like you say if something's not right then if they're the sole person in that job who does that in that organization or in that part of the business or in that location that can become really quite important so yes you're right that kind of engagement and that attitude um and how you help 
help people to to feel more engaged and positive towards their employer can can reap benefits in those kinds of kinds of environment. You've you've moved the ball into one of our hot topic areas, um, <laughs> which is something we, that has been uh, I, I wouldn't say a heated debate, but um, potentially a, a a controversial view. So I come from a systems engineering background, and in systems engineering, resilience is about system design, not component design. And so I take that into the organizational world in terms of a lot of people talk about resilience as as being an expectation of an employee, whereas for me, resilience is how you design the roles and organization around them. And there is this pull between resilient systems and and efficiency. And that that is that's the trade-off. If you want a resilient system, actually there has to be effectively excess capacity to deal with system failure. That from an engineering point of view, that's that's what you have to do. There's been a little bit of a um kind of push into um, resilience being an individual responsibility rather than an organisational one. And it's interesting, I think I've seen a few things, I think like Bruce Day is, is talking about this a little bit now, like the, the pendulum's moving the other way uh, now, but for a period of time there was like, we're going to train you in resilience and it's your responsibility to get through this stuff. Um, and I know that's very different to your view, but um, yes, I can resist mm-hmm. kind of putting that one in there that that there is that thing about very lean organizations. You, you've got to be aware that there is a balance there between resilience and running an organization incredibly lean and that they're not compatible. Yeah. And I, and we have to be quite careful with resilience because my, I can, you know, I might be able to cope with quite a lot of things um, and, and therefore be seen to be quite resilient, but that might not be the case. I might just be just coping um but appear quite resilient or um other people you might you know you can be very judgmental about resilience too you know so something happens ben and you, you know and you go oh, i can't cope anymore um and i go oh, i don't know able to cope with that <laughs> and that's the problem when you think about resilience um you can bring your own judgment into those things but really the reality is when we're in the workplace you only know the person that you see in the workplace. You don't know what else is going on if they don't share. And all of those things affect how resilient a person can be. And I like going back to your four pillars model, you know, where things become a significant issue, it's it's very rarely one axis of of pressure. I mean, it can be, but usually what's happened is things are coming at that person from multiple angles, and one thing is just the last thing. And so, um, one is being aware that, yeah, you're going to get different responses from from people potentially in the same the same role that are not necessarily individual differences. They're situational differences. If somebody's dealing with family bereavement, uh, you know, or, or quite dramatic shifts in the the childcare provision all you know any form of external stressor or you know the money is not meeting the bills you've got a base level of, of stress in there so actually small things in the workplace 
can be catastrophic if you've got somebody else who's like you know all's good in the world they've got money saved up in the bank and um <laughs> you know everything is just uh, rainbows from the other dimensions They'll, they can cope with a lot happening in the situation that somebody else might not and one of the things about well-being that i think is not immediately obvious is that preventative thing if you're helping to move all of those dimensions so in your context and the four pillars actually you know that is a way to tackle resilience where you're not making the individual's responsibility you're giving them capacity to deal with what comes mm-hmm. up yeah um, but i mean even and and that can be really difficult because some of the some of the things around you know if you think about the four pillars financial um is one of those that people don't talk about I mean, we don't talk about yeah. money very much anyway, but, but you know, to ask people in the workplace to start to talk about, well, you know, actually I'm in hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of debt because I'm not great at budgeting and I don't really, you know, I'm living beyond my means. So that is not a conversation that is going to happen that often in the workplace. Yeah. Um, and certainly not with managers. So one of the things, you know, and that's one of the areas where we, we've thought quite a lot and, and had to think quite hard about what we do um so we do you know we do have um links with a a kind of local community bank um and that's great because that supports that bank so people can save for christmas people can do those types of things but also they can get loans and if they use that community bank then that's helping other people in the community um to use that so we're kind of you know through some of these things you can support other initiatives that support other people who are not connected to the college so that's really good um, but there are, um, you know, we when we think about financial, we ran a session in one of our festivals to look at um, finances and how people do that. Um, and our first kind of experience of that was not many people went. But what we then yeah. said is, well, right, OK, well, why aren't people going? Well, probably because they don't want to talk about it. So then we said, right, OK, what people can do is anonymously put in questions that they have around finances. And then one of the team, one of our team can put that to the expert um, and then they get answers and people can then listen. We recorded that and then people can listen and they go, well, that was my question. And actually that was, you know, that was an answer. And that that then might lead them to feel more comfortable to talk about. Right. OK, well, that was really interesting. I now need to go and get some advice, more advice about that. So. Um, yeah, um, and we've try, tried quite a lot of different sessions around the four pillars and some are really good and some get lots of attendance and some aren't because they are more taboo subjects. And um, so, you know, we've run sessions um, around cancer and they've been really well received and well attended. But some of our other sessions on more sensitive subjects haven't been. Um, so you kind of have we so we have to think quite hard about how we deliver some of that. Um, and I think, yeah, so going back to that question of resilience, it is about how do you get people to engage in some of the areas where it might be affecting their resilience in the workplace or even at home um, in areas that they wouldn't want to talk about with their colleagues. Yeah, it, it, I think we'll, we'll come back around that that aspect as well, because that Oh, maybe maybe we explore that now. Um, there is that thing that a lot of the topics around well-being are very personal, um, and there there is that 
question, both from an organizational point of view and an employee point of view. So, well, where 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 do these boundaries exist? And you know, one of the things that has been highlighted with the changes from working from home is it is kind of shaking those boundaries up a little bit. Um, but it is that question: well, what what is personal stuff? What it, what are people comfortable talking about in the workplace? What are they not? And where, particularly as, a, as an employer or as a leadership team, where does your responsibility extend to? Because there are going to be things that are you're very personal to that employee that are not going to be things within the organisation's control necessarily. Cancer being a you know, very good example of that. I know that whole boundary thing is a really difficult one. Um if I think about a person, though, a human being, well-being doesn't, there's no boundary in well-being when you think about that. Um, and so when I think about what we need to do as an organisation and as a college, it is for me, how do we support people perhaps to have some of those things, that conversations with people that they feel uncomfortable with? And, and you need to maybe offer a range of different things. So I've talked about festivals and those things that we do um but also how do you enable people to access information which might be about stuff they don't want to talk about in the workplace and that will be probably individual for those people i mean we can universally say people don't like to talk about their finances at all in their work or at all um but that the level at which they talk about that might change. So for some people, it might they might want to talk about it at work if it really is having a huge impact on them. Um, so, so boundaries, I think, are quite difficult. I would definitely go with the human. There isn't really a boundary in a human. Um, so it is how much do we offer as an organisation to support people and what does that look like? So information, sessions, employee assistance programs, maybe champions of things. So you could create kind of networks and champions of people. So, so an individual doesn't have to talk to a manager. They could talk to somebody who's trained to do that or somebody in the organisation who's willing to listen to someone and help. Um, you could, There are multiple ways of doing it, and I think you have to provide multiple access points. But the more that you talk about these things, in your organisation, the more that perhaps people will want to talk about them too. And so therefore, those boundaries get even more blurred. And that can only be helpful. You know, if somebody thinks that maybe they they have something that, that perhaps isn't right with them, perhaps they're not feeling very well, but they're worried about maybe going to a doctor or they're worried about going to talk about that, wouldn't it be great in an organisation if they could find someone and say, look, I am worried and I don't know if I want to go to the doctor because I'm worried about that. And they could get some support to do that, which would help them to get an early diagnosis, get an early diagnosis, probably will support them much better than waiting for a long time um, when the prognosis may not be so good, no matter what that is. Interesting. There are, you know, obviously there are individual differences around that, and that's always been the, the case in terms of you know, cultures that people have been brought up in and those sorts of factors. But that actually there is a company or organisational culture aspect to that. Um, and I'm thinking about you know, some organisations, some types we work with, they're very competitive cultures. And so people talk about something that might be perceived as a weakness is like within that organisational culture is a no-no, no, you know, nobody's going to do that. And so for them, it's had it's been quite a shift to get to the point where 
I feel like I can safely talk about these things. So there is that bit of shaping organizational culture to create the context for those conversations. So it's interesting to hear as well that that's, that can be done quite programmatically. I like that idea of yeah, giving people other people to speak to other than their line manager that they might not be comfortable speaking to just to, to enable those conversations to happen and get people access to the resources that they need. Yeah, and, and culture, well, culture is, is important to create that kind of well, to create a really good well-being environment you know where it's where it is talked about where it is part of 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 what everybody does and as part of what a manager and an individual might talk about and I think for the college the other reason why well-being is important is that kind of crossover when you talk about boundaries with our students so and usually our clients are in the campuses all the time with us um so that's quite unusual you know in a bank they might come in and then they'll you know, a customer will come in and walk out, whereas we, our learners are with us maybe every day, every every week um, of their course. So that's that's kind of different for us in terms of our boundaries and how we think about well-being. Because if your clients are always there, then they're always there with your staff who are experiencing potentially and your colleagues' issues. So how do we deal with that? So alongside our well-being for staff, we obviously have students at the centre and we have quite a lot of wellbeing services but the other reason why I feel that's quite important is because our learners will be employees of the future and employers of the future so if we can show them what a great wellbeing culture is or a great culture that can only serve the whole of our community better and the whole of our workplaces of the future better um, so yeah boundaries are really interesting um, I'm sure there's a whole topic in that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great illustration of just great social value. And I think just putting that in context for people, you, we, we work with lots of organisations in the healthcare domain, and, and there you have sometimes an even more, again, it depends on the nature of the healthcare, the service being provided, but quite often your patients will will be there. And actually for for the employees as they come in every day, actually that that patient is a big part of their working context. And that patient is by definition on well, that's why they're they're in the surface. <laughs> so yeah, that that's the kind of one extreme through to you know where you've got a student population on campus and and that level of contact. But actually there's a continuum that every organization exists on because one of the, one of the things I often look at is how much customer or service contact is there for the organization and different parts of the organization because that shapes where where you're going to get flex in culture. But for every organization, there is some form of contact and it might not be the customers or the users. So I think about um, you know, for, for a software as a service business, for example, actually there's not a lot of contact with the users. They're not a big impact on the, on the employees. They might, some of the support folks might have chat with them, yeah. but the developers would, would never have it. However, in those organizations, the, the balance shifts to the impact of the suppliers that they work with and actually the well-being of the suppliers. So there is, there is some domain of influence on those external factors and you know, sometimes it, it, it's either the organization's responsibility or a good idea to reach over those um, those barriers a, a little bit and, and share the resources, even if it's at the level of here's something we've done as an organization might work for you, might not. But yeah, here's here's how we approached it. Um, 
Yeah, and social value is important. So one of the things we did in our sort of first year of real um, wellbeing festivals was we ran a wellbeing conference and um, anybody could come along to that. Um, so didn't imagine you didn't have to have a, an association with the college. You could come because you um, had seen it on LinkedIn or you'd seen it somewhere and, and you just needed to register. Um, and that was really good for the college. So we had a lot of people who came because it was the first time they'd been to the college or the first time they thought about the college. A lot of different organisations came. So so sometimes those types of activities are really good for your PR too. So they're not just good for the well-being of staff, but they're good for social value. They're good for your reputation and they're good for all those other things. So it's about how do we think about those things in that broader strategic context, not just I'm doing some well-being. So that's great. And I think that's that's a good thing maybe to come come around to end on, which is how do you take a long term view on well-being? Because it, you know, it, it's always initially going to end up being quite pragmatic because that, you know, you've got you've got to start somewhere um but from where you are now do you do, what would your i guess your advice be your thoughts on how do you take a long-term approach to it because it's not a job that's ever done is it really well-being no absolutely it's not and even if you've done it for a person something will happen to the person at some point in the future so you'll be looking at well-being and supporting them again um, because that's the nature of, of of life and interaction and part of being a human. So we t- we very much took the view that we would write our well-being strategy and we would have it um, over a sort of four-year period. And when we looked about it, we kind of took that very phased approach. So our first year was really about let's, let's have an introduction to well-being, um, let's run some events, let's do some things. And then our second year is let's embed some of that thinking and let's get feedback from people to support that embedding. And um, and then I think our kind of next year, which is the year that we're in now, is around about what new initiatives can we do? What new thinking is coming up for us? Where, you know, what are other organisations doing? Kind of being a bit, bit curious about some of those things. So one of the things we've done is introduce, for example, a coaching service. So that you might think, well, that, what's that got to do with well-being? So that's really just maybe coaching people to for an issue that they have around how they do things in the workplace. But actually, no, it, for coaching services about supporting people to in any aspect of their working life or any aspect of their life. So it's about what can we do and constantly thinking about that. And then I think in our final year, which will be the year after next and bear in mind we work on an academic calendar rather than a you know rather than a calendar year for us it will be about engaging with the staff even more than we have been um and saying what what's worked what's not worked what do we want to do and then also thinking and having conversations with our board and our people and culture committee to say how are we going to better measure the impacts how are we going to better do those things because um, I also think we we've run well-being festivals, quite a lot of those things. We've got quite a lot of things in place now. But I suspect over time um, they may get stale for people. Um, not another well-being festival. 
you know, whether they're going to do something on menopause or they're going to talk about whatever. Um, you know, how do we make that fresh for people? Um, so we do engage all the time with people who attend and also people who don't. Um, but I think in the, that's that kind of phased approach that I think you need to have. Um, and you do need to have dialogue with the people and your colleagues who may be attending events. But you, it's really key that you also engage with people who are not. Um, and that can be quite challenging because obviously if they're not engaging in the festivals and then you come along and say, well, I'd like to engage with you about where you're not engaging on them. That is a challenge. But how? so it's about how do we do all of that? So we talk to the unions, for example. One of the big challenges we have is that we've got a group of people who work on a timetable because they're, they're in classes. So how do we make sure that the events and things that we hold are in at times when they can engage as much as people who perhaps have a bit more flexibility than myself can? All of these things got to be thought about. But I think having a long-term strategy, having a real vision about your purpose, what you want to achieve, what the outcomes are, and setting that in a two, three, four-year framework and constantly reviewing and thinking what's new, you know, researching what's new out there. What can we bring in? What are we learning? Being open-minded. So um, that kind of curiosity is really important. And looking out with of your sector. So we all, I don't know um, about you, but I find quite a lot of organisations only look to their own sector. So if we've got a problem, we'll go, what are other colleges doing? What are other universities doing? What are other people doing? But actually, maybe the question should be, you know, what is that really large organisation doing, that bank that's international, or what is it that that small company is doing so that you can be curious and look out? Yeah, it's like a, like a, a slow version of Agile. I mean, that's the principle of Agile is, you, you know, you, you make your steps, you do your measurement, you you learn and iterate. It's doing that at a bigger loop, I guess, to, you know, do that over a two, three, four-year period because it does – my observation on well-being is it does take quite a while to work out what is working well and what isn't because there are so many different factors in. It's like just because somebody's not engaging doesn't mean that that's not working. That could, you know, that could be a culture barrier, organisational culture barrier. They haven't quite hit the right point to get people to, to engage with that. It doesn't mean you've got the wrong mechanism. It just might need packaging differently. Um, or, or actually, maybe you have got completely the wrong mechanism. So it is <laughs> quite a slow process to figure out what, what are these things are working and then pick apart well, why why did that not work maybe quite the way that we thought or why didn't that have the impact that we thought. I do like that idea as well of going to the covering both groups, those people engaging and those people who are not to give you that kind of understanding because there's always a danger with these things that you change something trying to improve it uh, and end up removing the thing that was that was good about it um, which always mm -hmm. makes challenging. Mm, yeah no absolutely um, and we have you know what I'm, one of the things that I'm going to be really interested about is about our participation rates um, because we have around about 48-49% participation rate um, but I do worry that if we continue to do some of the things that we're doing in the format that we're doing then we might see that that participation drop off and um, and it is 
just constantly asking you yourself questions and looking at your data and looking what things are telling you and using your you know your employee engagement survey data to tell you things and looking at every everything that you've got and using your community groups if you've got them you know using your well-being champions whatever they happen to be to kind of get that information to help inform your longer term vision and um, because i think well-being needs to be seen over a period of years not just something i'm going to do today and then it's okay um so a bit like agile working or smarter working you know we're moving away from that binary choice of home or work um and then i can see that developing even further so it's not just homework but it could be any you know any campus and any college but then we might start to say well actually it could be anywhere and we provide you the equipment to do that so I think these things are, are evolutionary and you need to see it like that, but you've got to start somewhere. That's my other thing. Get your strategy, get your purpose, think about it, think about what you're going to do over a long period of time, get that investment, persuade people, and then really show them through outcome and impact how it's making a difference. I like that. That's very sage advice to end on. Thank you so much for your time today, Zelda. It is appreciated um, you sharing your, your wisdom with us. Thanks very much for inviting me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Together, a podcast brought to you by Social Optic. If you aren't already subscribed, search for Social Optic Work Together on your favourite podcast service. And if you found it helpful, don't forget to help others find the podcast by giving it a rating, leaving a review and telling others about the show. You can find more from Social Optic on our website, socialoptic.com. If your organisation would benefit from data-driven decision-making and desire to work better together, then get in touch through the chat box on our website. Drop us an email or give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. You can also read more on our blog, where we explore more of the themes we discuss on the podcasts. This podcast was hosted by Benjamin Ellis and produced by me, Chris Trim.